Let's take our Bibles now. We'll turn to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in chapter four, but I'm going to do a little backtracking as we get going, okay? So as we look at the theme of what's going on, Paul is bringing the Galatians back to the gospel of grace. There have been those that have come in that are trying to turn them away from simple faith in Jesus to the works of the law, the legal system, and this would be the the law of Moses. And we can see that as we uh, just kind of pick things out as we go through. So I'm just going to jump back to chapter one and just real briefly pop through this. If you look at the first couple of verses of chapter one, you see that Paul is the author. You see that he's writing to the churches of Galatia. And then if you jump down to verse six, you see him saying, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. And so this is like the the point of the letter. It's like you guys are turning away from the truth that it's not just the message that Paul brought to him, but notice turning away from him. They're turning away from God and they're turning away from the grace that God offers. And that's salvation. It's how we can have our lives right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. And notice they're turning away from this gospel. And then in verse seven, he says, which is not another. So what you're turning to is not another gospel. And the reason is, is because the word gospel means good news. And what you're turning towards is not good news. Notice he goes on to say, but there are some who trouble you. So who are the some? There are some in your midst that are wanting to trouble you and notice to pervert or distort the gospel. And commentators refer to those that were doing this as Judaizers. And these were Jewish believers that were saying, yes, you have to believe in Jesus, but you also need to adhere to the law of Moses. And that is a distortion of the true gospel message. Anytime you add anything else to simple faith in Jesus Christ for salvation, you're starting to distort that message. We can never make it. Okay, and and God recognized that. He saw that. He he let us see that as he gave the law and showed how his chosen people who were equipped with everything they needed could not make it by keeping the law. And that's why he sent his son into the world so that he could make a way for us and we put our trust in him and that's how we have eternal life. But jump ahead to um, chapter two and this is where Paul had gone up to Jerusalem. Many believe this is the Jerusalem council where they were dealing with the issue of law and grace. And as you look at chapter two, verse three, it says, yet not even Titus, who was with me being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Now, Titus was up there. He's a Gentile. He doesn't feel compelled to yield to circumcision, which was the badge of the Jew. He didn't feel like he had to become Jewish in order to become a Christian. Verse four, and this occurred because of false brethren, secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage. See, in Jesus, there's freedom. In the law or anything else, it's gonna be bondage. Now, jumping on down the chapter, after Paul left and he's up in Syrian Antioch, as he's up there, Peter's up there with him. And Peter is a believer and he, was, he is Jewish and he kept the law of Moses, but now he's a believer. And he recognized that he doesn't have to keep the feast days anymore. He doesn't have to keep the dietary laws of Moses. And in fact, he's even free to eat and mingle with Gentiles. Jews wouldn't do that. 
They looked at Gentiles as unclean, and if they ate with them, they would become ceremonially unclean. But Peter felt the freedom to do that. However, we look at verse 11 of chapter two, and it says, now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Why? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. So those who are of the circumcision would have been the Jews that adhered to the covenant sign of circumcision. And we're also seeing that they're believers because they came from James. James was the half-brother of the Lord Jesus. He was the leader of the Jerusalem church. And so these had come as believers. Now, it's not saying anything wrong about James. I think it's just giving us an indication of, of who these guys are. Who are the they that are perverting or distorting the gospel? As we jump into chapter three, verse one, we read, O foolish Galatians, notice who, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? Who is the one who has come in and has wooed you away, has really deceived you? Actually, the word bewitched means to cast a spell. <laughs> who, who has put this black magic on you that you would turn away from the truth? And what is the truth? Faith in Jesus Christ is the way we are saved. Notice verse three, are you so foolish having begun in the spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? You were made a new Christian supernaturally by the spirit of God. Are you now going to be brought to completion? Are you now going to fulfill your Christian life through the flesh or through human attainment by keeping a list of rules? Or are you gonna do it continue to do it by the empowering of the Spirit. So kind of gives us an idea, doesn't it, on what's going on there. Again, scholars referred to these guys that were there as Judaizers. And I'll be honest with you. I could see where it would be really tough in the first century. You're Jewish, you receive Christ as your savior. You were raised in the culture of the Mosaic law. How do you just go? I mean, this is God's law. How do you just go, nah, we don't need that anymore. You know, I could see where it would have been a tough thing. I think the real problem was, it's not that they couldn't observe the feast days. It's not that they couldn't do things like that. It's that they couldn't depend on that for their right standing with God. They had to depend solely on faith in Jesus Christ. It was true then, it's true today. The only thing that's gonna make us right with God is us putting our trust in Jesus Christ. When we humble ourselves and repent of our sin, we say, God, I'm sorry, I've been going the wrong direction. I wanna turn and I wanna to come to you on your terms. And his terms are coming through faith in his son, Jesus, who he gave to this world to lay himself down so that we can be forgiven. And so that brings us back into chapter four. And Paul's been talking, when we started chapter four last week, he's been talking about believers being heirs. And yet prior to this Christian experience, you're really no different, even though you're going to be an heir, you're really no different than a son in a household. You're like a, a common slave. But when that day comes and you become a Christian, everything changes. And he, he talks about being redeemed by a very high price by the blood of the lamb, bought out of the slave market because Jesus laid his life down. And having been redeemed, we're brought into the house. We're part of the family of God. Now we're filled with the Holy Spirit of God and we're heirs. It's all good. Why would you turn back? 
You know, I see the application for us. I, mean, I don't know how many of us would just turn back into like <laughs> the law of Moses or something, but I could see the draw to turn back to the old life. Why? When you have all of this before you, and, and it's not just, well, I get to go to heaven. No, it's a, an abundant life now. If we're in relationship with Jesus, why turn back to that which cannot fulfill us? And so I think uh, application-wise, I can see how that factors in. But we're gonna go through this passage and, and see how it applied at that time and also see how it applies to us today. So we're gonna take it up from verse eight and let's go ahead and read all the way through verse 20 of Galatians chapter four. But then indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which by nature are not gods. But now after you have known God, or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid for you lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. You have not injured me at all. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear you witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy? Because I tell you the truth. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you, that you may be zealous for them. But it is good to be zealous in a good thing always, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I labor in birth again, until Christ is formed in you. I would like to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. Ah, oh, the heart of the Apostle Paul, amen. amen. The heart for these uh, young children of his, spiritual children that are being led astray by those who are zealously courting them. And so he, he jumps back, let's just jump back to verse eight and we'll briefly comment through this section. He says, then indeed, when you, when you did not know God, and this would be prior to becoming a Christian, he said, you serve those which by nature are not gods. Now, I, I, I'm gonna suggest that the majority of the believers in the churches in Galatia were Gentiles. I mean, sure, there were Jews as well. And when Paul traveled to um, the area of Galatia, which is present-day Turkey, he would go, he went into the synagogues in Pisidian Antioch and also in Iconium. In fact, if you wanna get the background on this letter right here, read the book of Acts chapters 13 and 14, and it'll really set the stage for what we've been reading and will continue to be reading, okay? So Acts 13 and 14 will set the stage as Paul comes to the area of Galatia, and he would go to the synagogue and he would preach, and yes, there were some Jews who would believe, but by and large, they would reject his message. But the Gentiles, on the other hand, they would receive it. And so as he's writing to the church here, a lot of these guys, I'm gonna suggest maybe even the majority of them are Gentiles. And so when you did not know God before you became a Christian, you served those which by nature are not God. So what did the Gentiles in that region do as far as their lifestyle goes? I mean, they probably were serving the Greek gods 
acknowledging the Roman pantheon, and this was the culture they were raised in. They weren't raised in Judaism or the traditions of the law of Moses, but they would be raised in something like this. And so what you served at that time weren't gods at all. Verse nine, but now after you have known God, or rather are known by God. It's kind of two ways of looking at salvation. You know, we look at it from our perspective. I know God now. From God's perspective, he knows us. That's important, amen. Because on that day as we stand before him, we don't wanna hear him say, I never knew you. We wanna be known by God, amen. Our good shepherd, our great shepherd. So now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements? to which you desire again to be in bondage. The word elements is the same word we saw last week in verse three, where it says, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. And it's speaking about the basic foundational things that we function within. For the Jews, it would have been the law of Moses. That was their structure, their foundation and standard. For the Greeks, again, it would have been their culture. Uh, growing up in the Roman Empire. You know, this is a interesting question. Before you became a Christian, what was the ethical standard that you functioned under to determine what was right and what was wrong before you were a Christian? What was the ethical standard that you had? I think for me, as I look back, it was probably my parents. Because even though my parents didn't raise us in a Christian home, because I don't think they were raised in a Christian home, they were just good moral people and they instilled those values in us. And they probably got those morals from the culture that influenced them. How many of you know our culture has changed? (laughs) And it's not what it used to be back in my folks' generation. But see, that really can't be the standard, can it? It can't be our culture. Because when we come to know God and we're known by God, this becomes the standard by which we judge what is right and wrong. And it's essential that we do that. If we bend to the culture, then we're gonna be turning away from the Lord. And notice how he refers to it in verse nine. He refers to that, that basic foundation, those elements as weak and beggarly. In other words, they're, they're bankrupt. They're not gonna get you where you wanna go. And where you wanna go is in God's presence. And that kind of system is just not going to do it. I think verse 10 gives us a key again to what was influencing them in this particular situation, where he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. This is undoubtedly referring to the holy days of the law of Moses. So the days would be the weekly Sabbath day. The months would be the new moon festivals. The festivals would be the yearly Passover, Pentecost, Tabernacles. And maybe when he refers to years, he's talking about the sabbatical years. Every seventh year, let the land rest or the year of Jubilee and so forth. And so bringing in these feast days and so forth, it kind of gives us an indication on, on who is influencing the Galatians at these times, the people from James, the people of the circumcision. And Paul says in verse 11, I'm afraid for you, lest I have labored for you in vain. The word labored means to labor to the point of exhaustion. Paul would pour out his life for these people. We get another example of that in Acts chapter 20, where Paul is meeting with the Ephesian elders. Paul said to them, therefore watch and remember that for three years, I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. 
You see Paul's heart there. Three years he's ministering to them and not ceasing to warn them night and day with a passion that's pouring out of them to be careful, to stand guard and to watch. And so Paul laboring to the point of exhaustion, he says, I'm afraid, not simply that I'm afraid I've wasted my time with you, but I'm afraid for you. I'm afraid that you're turning away from the truth that was once delivered to you, that you're being so wrongly influenced to go the other direction. He says, brethren, I urge you to become like me, for I became like you. Oh, what does he mean by that? Well, he as a Jew became like the Gentiles in the sense that he no longer felt bound to keep the ceremonial laws and the rituals that he once was like Peter when Peter went up to Antioch and was able to eat with the Gentiles. Hey, I became like you. You need to flip it around and become like me or like you used to be basically and let the law go. He says, you have not injured me at all, verse 13. You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. What then was the blessing you enjoyed? For I bear witness that if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. Have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? As he reaches out to them, he makes the point in verse 13 that it was because of physical infirmity that he preached the gospel to them. Now, Paul, on his first missionary journey, he left Syrian Antioch and he went to the island of Cyprus. Barnabas was with him, also John Mark. And from Cyprus, he went over to the southern coast of present day Turkey to Perga in Pamphylia. Now, reading a few different commentators, they mentioned the issue of malaria on the coastal plain there. And one commentator, Kenneth Weiss, points out, uh, and I can't remember the name of the disease, but a particular oriental eye disease that was prevalent in the area. And perhaps what Paul is saying is, I came to you, those in Galatia, Antioch, Pisidia, Iconium, Lystra, and so forth, I came to you because of physical infirmity, maybe to escape the coastal region. I need to get inland. I need to get away from this so my eyes can heal up. Maybe he was suffering from that oriental eye disease. Interesting thing to take note of is it was in Pamphylia that John Mark left the team. Maybe it was because he thought, man, this is too dangerous for me. I'm out of here. I don't know. This is all speculation, by the way. And so he goes up in there and so say, this is the case. He says, you didn't reject me when I was with you. And now imagine if he does have this eye disease and he's got swollen eyes and he's got pus running down his face. Let's sit down and have a meal together, shall we? You know, (laughs) and it's like, rather than rejecting me, you what? You welcomed me as an angel of God, as, as a messenger of God, as Jesus himself. In fact, as he mentions, if possible, you would have plucked out your own eyes and given them to me. You can see why people would come up with this speculation as to maybe that was the issue that was going on. In fact, if you turn to chapter six, as Paul is closing out the letter, it seems oftentimes Paul would have a secretary who he would dictate his letters to. And then at the close of it, he would take the pen and he would say, you know, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. He would kind of cap off the letter. In verse 11 of chapter six, He says, see with what large letters I've written to you with my own hand. Maybe that's an indication 
of his eye issue. Maybe it's like, I can't see. I'm just writing in huge Greek letters to say the Lord Jesus be with you. So again, that's speculation. But the idea is, is you haven't hurt me. In fact, you guys have accepted me even in my infirmity. What changed? You know, what happened between then and now? Verse 16, have I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? Guys, when we speak the truth, it's not always gonna be well-received. There are gonna be people who don't like to hear the truth. And there are gonna be people who end up hating us because we do speak the truth. But remember Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. The key thing we need to do is speak the truth because this world needs to hear the truth. They don't wanna hear the truth, but they need to hear the truth. So we need to speak the truth, but we need to speak it in love. Our heart has to be in the right spot as we share the gospel and communicate the truth that's in Jesus Christ. And now he turns to those again that were leading them astray in verse 17. They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. And I think the idea is, is they wanna exclude you from all that you have in the blessings of the new covenant that you might be drawn after them. And then he makes the point in verse 18, it is good to be zealous and a good thing always. And not only when I'm present with you, zeal is good. Zeal without knowledge is not good. You need to have the right kind of zeal founded in truth. And then we see his heart in verse 19, my little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. I'd like to be present with you now and to change my tone for I have doubts about you. Paul was the one who led them to the Lord. Spiritually speaking, he was like their mama. He's the one who who gave birth to them into their new life, if you will, by sharing the gospel And he says, I'm gonna have to go through this all over again, not so much so that they can become believers, but so that Christ can be formed in them. Go through the labor pains again so that you can come out of this deception and grow into maturity. You know, there's something about a mother's love for her children. You know, I don't know if it's the excruciating pain that mamas go through, in bringing a child into the world that creates that bond between the two of them. But you've got to, you've got to admit, I mean, there is a serious bond between mama and child. And there's a, a bond between the dad and child too, but the dad's got, I mean, I'll tell you what. <laughs> when Marion was pregnant with our first child, we were at our house and you guys can fill in the blanks, but we knew it was time to get to the hospital. You know what I'm saying? We knew we had to get there right now, okay? And so what goes through my mind is, well, we went through the Lamaze classes and what's the, I'm supposed to get like a little six pack cooler and have snacks in it because it could be there a while. That's what's going through my mind with her. She's like, get me to the hospital now. So she goes through all of that. And there's a special bond, I think, between mama and child. Warren, I want to weir- read what Warren Wiersbe had to say. Paul's like a compassionate mother who aches for her wayward children. We parents never seem to outgrow our children. When they're little, they're a handful. But when they're grown, they're a heartful. I remember hearing my mother say, when they're little, they step on your toes. But when they're grown, they step on your heart. In the latter part of this chapter, we see Paul using a 
historical example that we have in the book of Genesis from the life of Abraham to bring an illustration of the blessings of being under the new covenant and the consequences that come from being under the old covenant. Again, remember the context, the Galatian believers are being wooed back to embrace the law alongside faith in Jesus. So let's go ahead and read through the end of the chapter from verse 21. Tell me you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman, the other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and he of the free woman through promise, which things are symbolic. For these are the two covenants, the one from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is, and is in bondage with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Chapter 5, verse 1 Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. So to the beginning of this in verse 21, you who desire to be under the law, being swayed back to Judaism, do you not hear the law? And what he refers to there is a story that's in the law. Now, the first five books of the Bible were referred to as the Torah, which is the Hebrew word for law. And so he's gonna say, okay, let me, let me give you an illustration here out of the book of Genesis from the life of Abraham. And as the story goes, Abraham was brought from Ur of the Chaldees, present-day Iraq, into the land of Canaan, present-day Israel. And he was 75 years old. He was married to a woman named Sarah. She was 65 years old. And God promised Abraham that he would become a great nation and that his descendants would inherit that land and that through him, all the families on the earth would be blessed. Well, as time went on, God came to Abraham and said, Abraham, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. And Abraham, and he's about 85 at this time, he says, oh Lord, what are you gonna give me seeing I go childless and I have no heir? And God said, no, a child that's gonna come from your body is going to be the one that will fulfill the promise that I've given to you. And he took him outside and showed him the stars in the sky. And he said, so shall your descendants be. And Abraham believed in the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. 
So he's got that promise. Well, Sarah got to thinking. God said, a child from your body, not necessarily my body, but your body. So here is my handmaiden, Hagar, a young Egyptian that was her servant. Why don't you take my handmaiden, have a child by her, and it will be like it's my child, and that way God's promise will be fulfilled. We'll help God out a little bit here because Sarah at this time is 75 years old and she's clearly past the age of having children. And so it says that Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to be his wife. And so she ended up getting pregnant then. And when she got pregnant, it says she despised Sarah. It's almost one of those like, yeah, I got pregnant and you didn't. You know, you can't get pregnant. So Sarah gets livid and treats her harshly. And so Hagar runs away, pregnant with child. And God comes to Hagar and says, you are gonna have a child and you shall name him Ishmael. And he will be a mighty nation. But I want you to go back to your mistress and I want you to obey her. And so she goes back, she has the child, time passes by and then God comes to Abraham again. Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 89 years old. And God tells Abraham, you're gonna have a child by your wife, Sarah. And it's through him that I'm gonna bring the blessings. And Abraham, after he's raised Ishmael, I mean, Abraham's pushing 100. It's like, I've already gone through the terrible twos. Lord, let Ishmael live before you. It's like, no, my promise is gonna be fulfilled through Isaac. And so you look at this and first of all, check it out. The promise came at 75. The promise was given at 75. It was realized at 100. How many of you know that 25 years is a long time to wait (laughs) as you're waiting upon the Lord? We want it right now. I prayed this morning. Why isn't it coming to pass this afternoon? You know, (laughs) year after year, when it says wait on the Lord and you shall renew your strength, you will mount up with wings like eagles. Wait means to trust, to hope expectantly. Don't let that diminish. Continue to hope in him year after year after year because God is faithful. Listen to what it says of Sarah in um, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed and she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Amen. So this is the story that Paul is referring back to. So as we jump back into it again in verse 22, for it is written that Abraham had two sons, Ishmael and Isaac, the one that Sarah would bear. The one by a bondwoman, Hagar, the other, Isaac, by a free woman, Sarah. But he, Ishmael, who was of the bondwoman, Hagar, was born according to the flesh. The idea is, is human wisdom. I think we can help God out in this and we'll have Ishmael. And there's been trouble ever since the Arab-Israeli conflict, okay? And he, Isaac of the free woman, Sarah, through promise, God promised supernaturally and it came to pass. Then he says in verse 24, which things are symbolic. The Greek word is allegorio. We get our word allegory (laughs) 
from that. And so what he's doing is he's going, this is an illustration. It's a literal event that happened, but I'm going to make an illustration out of this. And so he says, these things are symbolic. By the way, I think it's the New American Standard and the King James that transliterate it as allegory. So these things are symbolic for these are the two covenants. The one from Mount Sinai, this is where Moses received the law, which gives birth to bondage, which is Hagar. Hagar's representing the old covenant. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, notice, and corresponds to Jerusalem, which now is. He means present day, first century Jerusalem. So the old covenant corresponding to present day Jerusalem and is in bondage with her children. This is Judaism in first century Jerusalem that are under the external list of rules. This is how you can follow after God is try to keep these standards and see how good you do. And so he's saying that Hagar in this illustration represents the old covenant. But he says, 26, the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. And so he's speaking now of what Sarah would represent, and this would be the heavenly Jerusalem, who is the mother of all who believe. And so to make it um, a little bit simpler, I'll look at these two columns that we have, the two covenants, the old and the new. Hagar representing the old covenant that was given at Mount Sinai where the law came. Again, corresponding to first century Jerusalem, Judaism, which led to bondage. But Sarah represents the new covenant that was birthed at another mountain, Mount Moriah or Mount Calvary. Remember Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. When Jesus laid his life down at Calvary, he was ushering in this new way that we can have our life right with God. And it's a gospel of grace. Grace is God's favor. We don't earn eternal life. It's his favor extended to us. We either receive it or we reject it. It's the gospel of grace and it corresponds to our heavenly home really, the Jerusalem that's above where we'll be with God forever and ever. We're living down here right now, but we've got dual citizenship. You know, our real home is in heaven. That's where life is really gonna start happening. That's when it's really going to be worth living. And that speaks of freedom. Let me give you just a few scriptures that speak to the Jerusalem that's above. In Hebrews chapter 12, as much the same thing is going on as he's contrasting the old covenant with the new. He says in Hebrews 12, for you have not come to the mountain that may be touched and that burned with fire into blackness and darkness and tempest and to the sound of a trumpet and the voice of words that those who heard it begged that the word should not be spoken to them anymore. He's speaking about when the law was given. At Mount Sinai, God told them to put up barriers around the mountain, lest anybody come near and touch it, for if they touch it, they're gonna die. And so the mountain was engulfed in flames, pouring forth smoke, and God spoke forth to the children of Israel, and it was like the sound of a trumpet getting louder and louder and louder, and the children of Israel said, Moses, tell God to stop. Let him speak to you, and then you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us anymore. That's the old covenant. That's what he's saying here, the author is. It's not like you've come to this, jumping down to verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion. That's a, a synonym, if you will, for Jerusalem. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven, 
to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect. How many of you believe that your names are registered in the Lamb's Book of Life? Let me see your hand. You, know, you can know that, do you know? You can know that if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, because it's not based on, did I perform good enough on this earth? It's based on him being more than good enough. So if you put your trust in Jesus, you can say, yeah, my name is there in the Lamb's Book of Life. It's a guarantee. When Jesus was speaking to the church of Philadelphia, to the overcomers in Revelation chapter 3, verse 12, he said, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. So to the overcomer, the name of God, written I am God's, and the name of the city of God, the new Jerusalem, written upon him. When we jump into eternity, Revelation chapter 21, then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, notice, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So that church is often likened to the bride of Christ. So we get a picture of what, of what Sarah represents here, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Jerusalem that's from above, that is the mother of us all, that is all who believe. So you've got the old, you've got the new. You've got bondage, you've got freedom. Which one is it gonna be? And again, we come back to the whole context of the letter. This is Paul writing to the Galatians. Go, are you really going to be that foolish? Have I really labored in vain? I'm afraid for you. Turn around and come back. It's the idea. Then Paul quotes from the prophet Isaiah in verse 27. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband. Now, he's applying what Isaiah said to the allegory that he's giving right here. But when you look back at who Isaiah was referring to, Isaiah was referring to the Babylonian exiles. So the children of Israel, they knew their, they were at their zenith, I guess, under King David and King Solomon. And after that, you know, things were okay, but they got really bad and then they would kind of get good sometimes. And they'd fallen into idolatry. That was the main problem. And God, God brought judgment upon his people. And he brought his, brought his judgment ultimately through the hands of the Babylonians. And the Babylonians came over and they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They destroyed Solomon's temple and they took who was left alive of the children of Israel into captivity. And they spent 70 years in captivity in Babylon. But after 70 years, there was a remnant. It wasn't huge, but there was a remnant who came back and they would rebuild. They would rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. They would rebuild that temple that was torn down and they would start afresh. And this is in reference to them. So when it speaks about the barren, and it speaks about the desolate, these are those who are coming back into the land. It's, and, but, but he makes the point. The desolate has many more children. You're gonna be fruitful. Okay, God isn't through with them. You're going to be fruitful once again. And the comparison, the desolate has many more children than she who has a husband was in reference to Israel pre-captivity. You know, Israel, like the church is likened to the bride of Christ. So Israel was likened to the wife of Jehovah. And so you're gonna be more prosperous, more fruitful than Israel used to be in its glory years, and especially in its idolatrous years. So that's the idea of what Isaiah meant 
What Paul means is he grabs it, much the same thing, but he's applying it to different people. As he's been speaking about Sarah and her handmaid Hagar, who would be the barren one? Sarah or Hagar? Sarah would have been the barren one. She's the one who couldn't have children, right? So rejoice, O barren, a reference to Sarah. You who do not bear, break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For the desolate, Sarah has many more children. In other words, through Sarah, through the new covenant is the idea, is there's going to be much more fruit, much more blessing under the new covenant than under the old. Yet when she contrasts Sarah, the barren, with Hagar, notice, than she who has a husband. And I'd first read that and I go, well, the one who had the husband, I mean, Abraham was Sarah's husband, right? But remember, it says that Sarah gave Hagar to Abraham to be his wife. And so I think that's the correct way to interpret that. And again, another graph to take a look at or columns to take a look at as he's speaking about the exiles, the the initial idea of the children of Israel being in Babylon who were barren, that corresponds to Sarah, that corresponds to the new covenant or Christianity. And those that have a husband would be Israel in pre-captivity that would again be Hagar and Judaism or the old covenant. Don't mean to confuse, but I have a hard time letting any point go by. You know what I mean? It's just really fascinating and interesting to me. So don't let that one bog you down, all right? Verse 28. Now we brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, even so it is now. He who was born according to the flesh in the allegory, it's Ishmael persecuted the one born according to the spirit or promise was Isaac. When Isaac was weaned, whatever age that is, let's say three years old, Abraham threw a great feast. Ishmael, 13 years older than Isaac, let's say he's he's in his teens. He's a teenager at this time, okay? And so he's beginning to scoff at Isaac. Look at the little baby Isaac. Well, Sarah sees this and tells Abraham, you get rid of him and you get rid of his mama because he is not gonna be an heir with my son. As the persecution was then, he's saying, so it is today. So who did Hagar represent? Those under the law. The persecution from those under the law to those that are not under the law. Christianity, same idea. And notice he quotes here back from that, that passage with Sarah and Hagar, verse 30. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. Verse 31, so then brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. If you're a, a child of the free, that means you're an heir. That takes us all the way back to what he said before we began our section. You used to be a slave, you were redeemed. You were adopted into the family of God, filled with the spirit of God, and you are an heir of God. So why then? Would you wanna turn back? And that's why I ended with verse one of chapter five. Stand fast therefore in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. The yoke was the wooden harness that the beast of burden would wear. It was how they did their work. And so the yoke of the law is going to be that which would hold you down rather than the freedom that Jesus gives us. Now there's still work to do as Christians. Listen to what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Notice, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' yoke is easy. Literally, it means it fits. Doing things his way works, and the load is not heavy, it's light. When we're in the center of God's will, things just seem to work out so much better than when we're off on the fringes. So as we close it out, the invitation where Jesus said, come to me. If you're not a Christian, then I encourage you, respond to the invitation, come to him. And how do you come to him? You come to him by repenting of your sin and by telling God, I want you to forgive me and I want Jesus to be my Lord and savior. That's when true life begins, as he said. You'll find rest for your soul. You'll find satisfaction that you've been looking for. Perhaps you're one that's turned away, not necessarily back to legalism, but maybe back to the world. The invitation to you is the same, come, return, come back to him. Don't be foolish any longer, but come back to him because he has such a wonderful life for you. And maybe for the majority of us who are really doing okay, all right, we're, we're doing good. Well, I would say to us, enjoy the moment. <laughs> <laughs> because it doesn't last forever, does it? You know what, today might be really good, but we know how life is. It can give us its trials and struggles, but this is my encouragement to the rest of us. Stay close to Jesus, because when we're close to Jesus, when those storms come, we're able to reach up and say, save me, Lord, and he's able to pull us up above the storms of life and help us to walk on water, amen? And that's what it's all about, really, is being in relationship with him, all right? Well, if we can pray with you, please come forward at the close of this final song that we have here. Thank you so much for coming out. And um, why don't we go ahead and stand as we close with a word of prayer. Dear Father, we do thank you for the time that we could spend in your word. And we thank you for the truth that it brings us and more importantly, the guidance that it gives us in our lives. And Father, my prayer is if there are any who don't know you, who haven't surrendered their life over to you. And Lord, we all know, I think we all truly know in the depths of our heart where we stand. Lord, I just pray that they would reach out to you today and say, God, forgive me. Make me the person that you want me to be. I pray the same for those who have walked away. May they, may they come back knowing that you're like the prodigal son's father with open arms there to receive them. And Lord, for the majority, I trust of those of us who are here, Help us to recognize that you are our, our only safe haven. You are the only one where, where we truly can continue that life and have it be abundant because you are present with us, Lord. Help us to live out the rest of our days, however long they may be, in order to bring honor and glory to your name, Father. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.